You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm Patrick Smith. On our podcast this week, Donald Trump, almost needless to say. Dennis Staunton is just back from the Democratic Party convention. He was taking part in an event on the sidelines about Brexit, and he muses on how Hillary Clinton is fighting back. And the Donald has just perhaps irretrievably blown a hole in his foot. It has been described as the costliest white elephant in history, the development of the nuclear plant at Hinkley Point in Somerset on the edge of the Bristol Channel at a cost of at least £30 is politically, economically and environmentally controversial. Last week, the British government said it wanted more time to consider it. Dick Alstrom, our science correspondent, is here to talk about it. And as Brussels institutions close down for the summer break, Suzanne Lynch, our European correspondent, reflects on the mood in Europe's capital and the challenges that await them on the return in the autumn. At the start of last week, Donald Trump, courtesy of the Republican convention the week before, had pushed himself ahead in the polls of Hillary Clinton. In the course of rebranding her, the party put up speakers to illustrate her patriotic credentials. Up the steps came the father of a dead army veteran, Kizer Khan, whose contribution has enraged Trump to the point it appears of blowing himself out of the water. Dennis, tell us the story, and has Trump really gone too far this time? He may have gone too far. Uh, Kizer Khan, as you say, his uh, his son, uh, Humayun Khan, was a, a captain in the U.S. Army, and he was killed in a car bomb in Iraq when he was uh, 27 in 2004. And it was a a particularly heroic uh, death because what happened was that he went and stopped a vehicle which was putting hundreds of soldiers in danger. He told them to crouch down. He went, stepped forward and stopped it and was blown up with the uh, suicide bomber but saved all these lives. So he was um, awarded a bronze star subsequently. Uh, His father and mother uh, appeared on the stage just an hour before uh, Hillary Clinton spoke at the convention. And they are immigrants from Pakistan. And the father, uh, he, uh, he he gave a very, very powerful speech uh, condemning Donald Trump and Donald Trump's uh, attitude to Muslims and particularly his uh, plans to or his proposal to ban Muslims from entering the United States. He held up a copy of the Constitution and he said, have you ever read the Constitution, uh, Donald Trump? And then he, uh, in the most powerful moment, he suggested that Donald Trump should go to Arlington Cemetery and to look at the gravestones and he would see that uh, the fallen came from every religion, every ethnicity, and uh, and uh, and then he said, well, "You have sacrificed nothing and no one." Uh, so this was a very very powerful moment uh, in uh, in the middle of a really very successful convention in terms of just the stagecraft of it, and it was very slick and uh, and uh, a very um, a very well managed convention. But uh, the the uh, the whole event might have been forgotten had it not been the fact for the fact that uh, Donald Trump, as is his wont, immediately hit back because, as you know, uh, his attitude is: if anybody hits me, I have to hit back. So he hit back at uh, at, at Hisa Khan in an interview where he says, "This man has no right to uh, question uh, me in this way and to ask if I've read the Constitution." Of course, I have. And uh, then he said uh, that uh, he suggested that uh, the reason that the uh, that Mr. Khan's wife, who stood on stage next to him, had 
had not spoken was that perhaps she wasn't allowed to speak, and this being a kind of a, a, a slur on uh, their Muslim faith. And then when uh, George Stephanopoulos uh, of ABC News was interviewing him, and he asked him about uh, this whole question of what he had sacrificed, and he said, I've sacrificed a lot. I've created thousands of jobs, and I've built, uh, built a big business. I think that's a sacrifice. So this has been uh, something which has, as you say, it's blown up in his face. I think the difference between this particular controversy and many others is that uh, quite a lot of the time, the people who like Donald Trump like the fact that he hits back and that he's politically incorrect where it comes to other politicians or people they would see as part of the establishment. It's different when he goes for citizens, for ordinary people, as it were, and particularly for the clearly grieving parents of, uh, of a war hero. And it and the, the one incident that it's a, it's a bit reminiscent of is when um, Donald Trump uh, started to impersonate a New York Times journalist who had a disability. And that was, again, one of the few um, uh, Trump insults that seemed to upset some of his own supporters as well as other people. So what you found just in the you know, in focus groups and in polling that's been done since all this happened is that there's a sense of disquiet even among uh, his own element within the Republican Party. And you've seen in the last day just uh, even some Republican leaders who have been very uh, quiet uh, when it came to criticising Trump. They've come out and, and criticised him. I think John McCain has, has, uh, has been quite blunt. He has been blunt. John McCain has criticised him, and so too has the House Speaker Paul Ryan. But neither of them have actually withdrawn their endorsement of Donald Trump. And one of the reasons they haven't is that both of them face primary challengers before uh, the November election. And uh, you know, since, say, in Arizona, where John McCain is uh, seeking to defend his Senate seat, about 70% of uh, the Republican primary electorate are fans of Donald Trump. And so if uh, John McCain were to unendorse Donald Trump, then he could lose his primary challenge. Uh, likewise, in the case of, uh, of Paul Ryan, he's got a primary challenger uh, from the right who's a big supporter of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump was tweeting just yesterday uh, uh, in support or at least in thanks for his support. So, uh, so, both, so, so although uh, a lot of senior Republicans are condemning what he says or distancing themselves from what he says, they are nonetheless not actually withdrawing their endorsement, which would really be uh, the kind of the nuclear option. Now, the, the main project last week uh, of the Democrats uh, was to humanise Hillary. And do you think they succeeded? Polls show the traditional post-convention blip uh, su supporting her. Is that sustainable? I think it is, because I think actually there was a dual strategy. Part of it was to humanise her and also just to get over some of the difficulties that people have, like the fact that people don't trust her. People think that uh, she has lied about these emails that she kept on a separate private server. And it's quite clear that whether she lied or not, she certainly didn't tell the truth about them. And uh, and so, uh, so they're, they're trying to get over this. And so an awful lot of these uh, speeches were designed to say, uh, this woman is qualified. And in the case of, say, someone like Michelle Obama, I trust her with the welfare of my children over the next eight years. She's the only person I would trust. So a lot of it was uh, it was endorsing her and making it clear that she was qualified and that she was likable enough, in the words of, uh, uh, of uh, Barack Obama eight years ago. But also 
uh, part of the point was to disqualify Donald Trump. And of course, the, uh, you know, his or Ham's uh, intervention has played a huge role in helping that. But throughout the convention, you've had attacks on uh, Donald Trump. And also, I was talking to uh, some people within the Clinton campaign, and they're very interested in the way in which they can get under his skin. They've got behavioral psychologists advising them. And uh, and so you'll often hear, for example, Elizabeth Warren going on about this thin-skinned little man. Now, it seems that that just drives him crazy. And to the point where, uh, you know, this idea of him being erratic, of being thin-skinned, undisciplined, unable to control his emotions is now becoming something which uh, is, you know, is starting to become an accepted view of him. This morning in the Washington Post, there are two uh, pieces in the opinion page which are essentially questioning Donald Trump's sanity. Now, if you can disqualify somebody in this period of the campaign, that you know uh, that goes a big way towards winning in November. And you may recall, Paddy, in two thousand and four, when John Kerry uh, left his convention, uh, you know, feeling pretty good, and he had had a good convention standing for the Democrats against uh, George W. Bush. But during the summer, through a series of kind of black operations, uh, they uh, effectively wore him down. And while the Democrats weren't really doing anything much in response, the Republicans did uh, hold John Kerry's uh, candidacy below the waterline. Hillary Clinton's people are hoping that they can do the same thing with Donald Trump over the next few weeks. One of the most effective lines in her speech was the, the reference to him being baited by by uh, Twitter. And is this the man that you want with your finger on, on, an, on a nuclear, nuclear button? Yes, that's exactly it. And that's precisely this image that they want to convey of him as somebody who just, uh, you know, who can't control himself. He's, you know, on Twitter, he's uh, emotionally incontinent. And so you couldn't possibly trust him with something as important as the presidency of the United States. Now, tell me about her, her VP, Tim Kaine. He, he's got an Irish background. And how is he playing with the party? He's playing very well with uh, uh, with uh, some elements of the party. He's he's really from the uh, the, the moderate uh, element of the party, what they call the moderate element of the party, what we might call the right. Although he has a number of left wing positions. So, for example, he opposes the death penalty, but he was also uh, you know he's a he's a committed Roman Catholic, and he is personally opposed to abortion. Although he is in favour of abortion rights. Now, he was not a popular choice for the supporters of Bernie. Sanders, who felt that uh, they'd like to have had somebody who was more representative of that uh, Sanders left uh, element of the party. Uh, but nonetheless, he does ha- tick a number of boxes. One is that he has never lost an election and he uh, has been a governor and is now a senator of Virginia, which is a very important state for Hillary Clinton to win. So he will help her to lock lock down Virginia and take that off the uh, the map in terms of being a battleground state. And that obviously frees up resources for elsewhere. He's also, uh, he's a very good person to uh, attract college-educated white voters. And college-educated white voters have, in the last number of elections, gone for the Republicans. And so Barack Obama, for example, didn't uh, win a majority of them. But uh, at the moment, Donald Trump is doing fairly badly among them, and Hillary Clinton is slightly ahead among uh, college-educated white voters, particularly college-educated white women. Now, he, uh, Tim Kaine, is very much 
the person who can reach these people, of some people who might feel a little bit put off by her or a little bit unhappy about her. He's kind of, you know, he's, he was the butt of uh, a number of jokes during the convention because he comes across as such a nice guy, as a kind of a, you know, a, you know the everybody's kind of favourite soccer dad is what people were talking about him. And uh, just uh, like a sort of a very nice kind of neighborly dad who just will, you know, always do the right thing and, uh, you know, and, and a good neighbor. But this is not a bad image for, um, you know, for certain segments of the electorate in the United States. So I think uh, he was probably a very good choice. And also it's quite clear that they feel very comfortable with one another. And uh, because he's a person of substance, there's no question Nobody's talking about whether he's qualified to be president in the event that uh, he might be called upon to do so. And it'll be an interesting uh, sequence then, uh, making the job of vice president a sort of Irish uh, job in a way. Yes, although uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, has a big interest in Ireland herself, and uh, the, both Clintons feel as if they've got a big stake in uh, the Northern Ireland peace process. So, uh, but but certainly people uh, around Tim Kaine were suggesting that uh, if they do win the election, that St Patrick's Day in the White House next year will be uh, will be a very big event. As one of them said, the tents will be back out on the lawn. I'm sure you'll be back for that. And can I just ask you finally? You you were at an event on uh, about Brexit on the sidelines of the convention. Was there much interest? Yes, there's a huge interest in uh, in Brexit for uh, for a lot of reasons, but most particularly because of the parallels between uh, the, the the rise of Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump, and uh, it's a very similar. Uh, group of people, uh, white voters, older voters, uh, people who feel left behind economically. Uh, those are the core group who voted for Brexit, and they're also the core group who voted for Donald Trump. And the other thing, of course, uh, uh, about Brexit is that uh, it uh, it was a vote against the political and media establishment, most of whom got it wrong and didn't expect it to happen. And so uh, there's uh, quite a lot of uh, anxiety among that equivalent establishment in the United States, that maybe they're underestimating uh, the capacity of Donald Trump to actually win this election, and that maybe the the level of anger among the uh, these white uh, male older voters will be so great that actually they will turn out in unprecedented numbers, which again is what happened with Brexit. A lot of these working class voters in uh, parts of, uh, of England who voted for Brexit are people who normally don't show up for elections. And so there is... Uh, some anxiety that although uh, Donald Trump is running an unconventional campaign, uh, he's got much, much less money than uh, Hillary Clinton has. The, he doesn't appear to have any ground game really uh, to speak of as yet, whereas she's got a really very sophisticated one, which is based on the one that successfully won two elections for, for Barack Obama. But nonetheless, uh, there is just this fear that maybe uh, the rules of the game have been changed and that Brexit uh, was a straw in the wind and that uh, this wind could be blowing in the direction of Donald Trump. On that ominous note, thank you very much, Dennis. Thanks for listening to the programme. Remember, if you like this podcast and want to support it, it's easy to do so. Just subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. Last week, a matter of hours after Électricité de France announced that it was ready to start building nuclear power station Hinkley Point, which has been in the pipeline since 2006, the new British government under Theresa May said it wanted six months' time to examine the project. 
It's the first of the UK's new nuclear plants in over a decade. Two aspects are of particular concern. The Chinese involvement in, a, in the project, regarded as a strategic one, and the UK government's commitment to a guaranteed price for energy from the plant, a price that many say is far too high. Dick Alstrom, can you untangle the arguments, political, economic and environmentally? First, what sort of a plant is it and how safe is it? This is a new type of nuclear reactor that was developed um, by a number of country, countries um, and companies. Um, it's supposed to be the safest design we have for large-scale nuclear plants. Um, it's, it, the plan for Hinkley C um, would be able to produce almost as much electricity as Ireland needs for an entire year. So it really is, is delivering a lot of power. And 7% seven, seven of British needs. Yes. And it's, it's, it evidently has triple layers of safety built into it. So if there was an explosion, if it was hit by an aircraft, um, any number of accidents taking place, they believe that they can cope with all of this. And it uses less fuel, nuclear fuel, and produces less waste than, than a traditional plant. That's what they say, so we'll have to wait and see if that actually delivers when they finally have the thing up and running. That's the plan, though. That's what they think will happen. Now, Electricité de France has built, or is building, several other examples of, of the plant, and not terribly successfully. No, they've run over budget. Um, the thing I don't like to hear is when they talk about this being a prototype. This is supposed to be a full, fully working model, um, but yet I've seen various places where it's referred to as a prototype. They're building one in France, they're building one in fin Finland, and the plan was to build two at Hinkley Point C, which is in Somerset, looking at um, across the Irish Sea towards us, actually. Uh, indeed, and it, is it something that the Irish government has expressed concern about? The government always has expressed concern about any nuclear developments in Britain for fear that it'll, there'll be a backlash for us, there'll be a Cher Chernobyl-type accident or some other difficulty like that. So basically, we're not, we don't tend to be for them, we tend to be against them, even though realistically, um, they're not as dangerous as people believe, I think. And in particular, in the Windscale case, uh, there was long history of opposition from the Irish government to developments there. It was to do with also the pumping water, contaminated water, into, into the Irish Sea. There was a few different things. I mean, it was really quite a dirty plant. Um, Windscale or Sulfield, as it was later called. And it was infamous for pumping out um, radioactivity into the oceans. Now, we tested for this and watched for it and all the rest of it. It did show up in shellfish and in fish. Um, but not at levels that was going to hurt anyone. But it, it doesn't matter. If there's a little bit of this in your water, you're not going to be happy about it. If somebody put a little bit of this radioactivity into a beer and said, do you want to drink that, I'd have to say no. And in fact, the, the, the Irish government has had a long-standing position of opposition to development here of any type, type of nuclear uh, uh, program. Yes, that goes way back. I think it's 1976 uh, when there were protests down in Wexford saying we would, don't want a nuclear plant here. Somebody had the idea that they were going to put in a plant down in Wexford. And one of the key questions that people are asking about Hinkley Point is, have they resolved this issue of long-term waste? Uh, is, is, that, is that solved in some way? No, this is a big mess. I mean, there's, there's things that can be done, but they don't commit themselves to doing them. Um, Sellafield is notorious for another reason. It's sitting there with these containers of liquid waste, highly radioactive, enormously dangerous, um, not completely uh, protected if somebody was determined to, to break them open and send them out into the, sluice them out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, it's, it's really not satisfactory that they haven't done something about this. And the, any new plant that you put on stream is going to produce waste. I mean, when you think of it, if you go to the dentist um, and they take a, an x-ray of your teeth, the dentist may wear a little tag 
which um, measures the amount of radioactivity that they might be exposed to. And even that represents radioactive waste. So it could be very quite dangerous liquid, uh, very radioactive material, or it could be something as simple as a little dosimeter or a little jacket. Now, the traditional opposition from uh, Greenpeace and other similar organisations continues to own all forms of nuclear development. But is the reality not that the case in recent years has been that um, if there is an environmental case against nuclear power, it's trumped by the fact uh, that most other systems are, are far dirtier? Um, certainly anything burning coal or fossil fuels is not the cleanest way to go. Um, it's also difficult because it releases a lot of carbon dioxide, and we're trying to keep that out of the atmosphere these days in the hopes of slowing down global warming. Um, what the nuclear plants promise to do is to say we would, will not be producing carbon dioxide um, in our exhaust stream or waste stream, and uh, so therefore we're an answer to this whole problem of climate change. Right, and the other alternatives are the so-called clean energies like wind power and, and, and the windmills of various kinds or whatever, but they're still not capable of generating the sort of levels of, of energy that, 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 that an economy like the British needs. That's right. I mean, the power that these huge plants produce really just keeps the whole thing ticking over. And to the power that they make, you can add things like wind power, off, offshore, onshore wind, um, small hydro projects, large hydro projects in the UK, I think, as well, and biogas and other forms of, of renewables. Now, one of the, the things which is most controversial about the uh, Electricité de France contract is that built into it is a price for electricity, which is astronomical, many people say, and isn't related to the relatively cheap cost of electricity at the moment. It's outrageous. I mean, they're, they're charging ridiculous money. It's more than, than twice the cost of, of uh, an, a normal um, kilowatt hours, they describe it. It's, it's how much power you might use up in an hour. That's, that's how you decide how much it'll produce. But the, it's more than double the cost, the, the current cost of this electricity through other plants. So, and this is promised virtually in perpetuity, I mean, if, at least for 35 years. I think the standard contract that they've signed is for 35 years for this. And it means then that if power prices fall for some reason or other, because somebody invents something wonderful that produces cheap electricity, then the higher price still has to be paid with a top-up from the UK government. Now, that's not a bargain that most of us would want to enter into. There's also uh, uh, penalty elements in the, in the contract, which r would mean that if they decide to abandon the project halfway through, they still have to pay huge amounts of money. That's right. And it's not a small matter because, in fact, the company um, has been put under pressure um, it's, it's not that stable a, a financial entity, and this is not something that's helping it. So it's, from an economic point of view, are you, do you say the case is really not very convincing for, for this extraordinarily expensive project? Well, the, these projects are always billions. I mean, the, this is the largest electricity plant of its kind in the world, and so therefore you expect it to cost a lot of money. Um, it's just that if you don't have the economics right and you're forced to pay way more than you should for this, I mean, it, the produce, it, it produces electricity that costs more than offshore wind, and that's the dearest form of renewable that you have. So it's really, it's not satisfactory. <laughs> but it's continuous, unlike wind. Yes, it continues, and it'll run for as long as you want it to run. Um, they have several of these plants, and it provides this, what's known as this base load. Um, but if you don't trust what's there, or if you can't get a deal that, that's going to pay properly, um, that's going to make economic sense then why are you pursuing it? There are other things that can be done. Renewables in Britain, for example, are underdeveloped compared to here.
And tell me now, the the the, the British government in the in the course of the last few days has uh, had a, had a sudden a sudden, sudden uh, second thought about uh, the whole thing. Uh, do you think that that is a serious second thought, or is this a negotiating ploy? Well, because I don't sit in cabinet, and I'm not sure what she thinks. Um, I would have to say, as an outsider looking in, I believe that, in fact, it's probably a bargaining chip as a result of Brexit. Um, to hold this project up, I mean, this is multi-millions. I mean, the British unions, uh, the people that would work on these plants, are mad keen to see this go forward. The French workers who would facilitate from their side as this is being built are opposed to the project going, and they want a delay in this because it serves them better. I think they believe that, in fact, what would happen is money would be diverted into um, the existing older nuclear power plants in France, and those would be upgraded or improved. And an interconnector built between France and, and Britain? Um, there's an interconnectors planned. In fact, we're supposed to have an interconnector. The thinking is that we will have one over time. It would be advantageous for us to be able to sidestep um, British power because we don't know what's going to happen now with Brexit and all the rest of it. But um, these, these things are, are, this is gambling at, at the highest order um, because there are billions involved, thousands of people who will work on these projects and then millions of people, I suppose, who will be downstream or downwind from one of these plants if something went wrong. Um, and there is also an element which, which is, is concerning to um, conservatives, that is the involvement of the Chinese on a, on a huge scale. Yeah, I, th I suppose it brings to mind James Bond movies or something like that. Um, it's the idea that, the, that this, this entity, this country that we for decades did not trust and was an arch enemy and threatened one another with nuclear weapons is now somebody who's going to put in a sensitive piece of equipment like a nuclear power plant. Um, those that would be most radically opposed to their involvement would say, well, they could put something in there that would allow them to shut down the power or to do something um, to make the plant blow up or something. It's, it's unrealistic. It's, it's, the Chinese are in business to make money, and so therefore they wouldn't necessarily be the worst partners that you could have for such a project, but not for arch-conservatives. And it's Chinese money rather than expertise that we would be buying. That's right. As far as I know, they have no um, technical involvement in this at all. I think it's really just a matter of, of finance from their point of view. They would view it as strategic anyway because I think they were also planning to have some of these plants. And they want to see how, how it works. Thank you very much, Dick. You're listening to The Irish Times. Brussels in August goes into hibernation. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent is for the summer. It needs the break to draw breath after what has been an extraordinary, convulsive and difficult few months. What with Brexit, the migrant crisis, terrorism. Suzanne Lynch, the last few days have been about unfinished business. How stands the European capital? I gather, I gather for example, this morning uh, there was a new job for British former ambassador to Dublin. Yes, well, very much at this time of the year, as you say, things wind down. And there's a sense really in Brussels that uh, Europe needs this breather, particularly after the shock British referendum results in June. Um, officials on both sides of that debate are saying, look, now is the time to take a few weeks and we'll come back in September with maybe more clarity from the British side about what they want and um, the first conversation in a serious way about the future of Europe uh, post-Brexit. But as you say there, there are certain things uh, that are continuing apace. Um, today, Jean-Claude Jean announced uh, a new portfolio for the new British Commissioner. Now, in the days following the British referendum, uh, Jonathan Hill, the Brit Britain's EU Commissioner, stood down, and this was quite a surprise at the time. Uh, David Cameron then, in one of his last acts as Prime Minister, 
I decided to appoint a replacement and he appointed Sir Julian King. He's ambassador to France and actually was former ambassador uh, to Dublin also. Um, now, people have been, he, he met Jean-Claude Juncker uh, last month. Um, Juncker has been reflecting on what portfolio to give him. And today it was announced that he is going to be allocated the security portfolio, which was more than a lot of people had, uh, had expected. Um, because there is a sense that obviously with Britain on its path out of the European Union, should they really have a commissioner. Uh, but he is going to play a key role in having a continued presence within the European Commissioner and very close to Jean-Claude Juncker um, in, in the next years before Britain actually exits the European Union. Julian King would be well known in, in Dublin. He was ambassador here for a very important period, including the, the Queen's uh, visit. And it is a significant uh, posting, both by London and in terms of what uh, Juncker has, has given him. Yes, because in one, one sense, Jean-Claude Juncker last week surprised a lot of people by appointing Michel Barnier, the former French EU commissioner, to head up the Commission's Brexit and negotiating team. Now, um, Mr. Barnier was very well known to the City of London and was seen um, at, at the scourge of the City of London, in a sense, because he was the internal markets commissioner. He succeeded Charlie McCreevy, um, but he was known as Mr. Regulation. He held that post after t- in the wake of the Eurozone crisis, and he introduced a lot of controversial uh, measures in the financial sector, including the controversial bank bonus pay um, that the City of London riled against. So uh, his appointment did not go down particularly well in London. Um, So we can see that this appointment by Julian King to security brief, which is quite a substantial brief, is seen uh, by by many as maybe an olive branch to Britain. But there are very much, uh, very much in a sense that they're setting into a phony war period between uh, London and Brussels. Um, I've spoken to people myself, officials in Brussels, who who are simply saying that, that London is still uh, not really informed them of what kind of shape, what kind of a, of a post-Brexit relationship they are going to want to demand from Europe. Um, and uh, remarkably little progress, if you like, has been made since June. Uh, Theresa May, the new Prime Minister, has said she will not be invoking Article 50 until January at the earliest. Uh, but what we will see before then is maybe some conversations, informal conversations, about how that process, once it starts, uh, will take shape, how it will be structured, how the negotiations will be undertaken. Uh, but one of the huge problems for Britain, of course, is its personnel and uh, most of its trade negotiators. And, of course, this is going to be the real core part of this negotiation. Most of its trade negotiators are in Brussels, uh, many of whom are working for the European Commission. So will we be seeing some of them joining the British side, if you like, in the next year as this hugely uh, challenging uh, trade negotiation uh, begins? Yeah, and the big critical question really is is not so much when the talks, the substantive talks on, on Brexit begin, which the Financial Times this morning is saying probably won't happen until the end of next year, but talks about talks. And when it's dividing up the issues into different strands of talks, uh, legacy issues uh, to do with Britain's membership of, of, of the Union at the moment and extracting mm. itself from, from that, and then trade mm. talks separately. I see the Financial Times also speculating that there's going to be a big row about uh, continuing to pay British pensions. Yes, um, the, there are about 1,200 or so British officials in the European Commission uh, who are still working there, and obviously um, many more who are in receipt of pensions. And, I mean, I've been talking to British officials here in Brussels who, of course, uh, their own career uh, future has been thrown into, into turmoil by Brexit. Um, but they've been more or less told by uh, people on the British side that they're, 
they're going to be at the bottom of the list really when it comes to this negotiation. Britain has a huge challenge uh, to meet now in trying to secure the best terms possible uh, for its country as it negotiates with Brussels. And I, I would I would say that and um, the welfare and the pensions and the payments and the work uh, terms of its British employees in the European Union will be will be very much at the bottom of that list. Uh, technically, uh, when you join the European Union, you are now you become an employee of the European Union, not of your your country. Uh, so that is going to be one uh, huge obstacle to overcome. But also, there is an array there are an array of issues and. For example, you have everything from the, the common aviation policy. Where is Britain going to fit into that? Uh, to obviously to trade, um, to security and, and terrorism, and, and that's what's quite interesting by, about the appointment of Sir Julian as um, a security expert in the EU Commission. Um, Theresa May, obviously as, a, as Home Secretary, had a huge knowledge and a huge input into European security policy. Um, so again, that might be seen as an olive branch. But of course, this is one of the, the kind of ironies of Brexit. In terms of security, in terms of um, migrate, uh, in terms of terrorism, uh, Britain actually had the, the best possible deal with Europe because it was a member. It, it could opt into justice EU justice legislation that it wanted to be a part of, but along with Ireland, it had opt out to the bits it didn't want. And also, as a non-Schengen country, it actually, like Ireland, effectively had a, had a lot of control of its borders. And Theresa May, back in April, actually, you know, was on the record saying this thing. She believed that Britain's security would be better served within Europe. Uh, so how Britain is going to ensure uh, the same maybe level of cooperation with Europol, for example, when it's outside the European Union, is going to be critically important. And it may be something that we see Sir Julian um, playing a role in now as his new, in his new position. And of course, we still know nothing about what exactly Britain wants uh, from, from Brexit. Listen, thank you very much, Suzanne. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Dennis Staunton and Dick Alstrom, and to sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan and our producer Declan Conlon. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts in iTunes or at www.irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. 